It's really wonderful to be able to serve with my fellow pastors uh, this morning. I was reminded that at the Nativity Play last year, we had the three wise men. And it's good to be able to join uh, the three wise men and one discerning woman at at the piano this morning. The passage of scripture I'd like us to look at this morning is taken from Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, verses 27 to 37, and if you have a Bible with you, won't you turn with me or scroll with me uh, to Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word. I remember once reading an article by the comedian uh, Dave Barry in which he addresses the five most difficult questions wives ask their husbands, questions that strike terror into the heart of any husband. You're sitting, there, you're sitting there quietly minding your own business when out of the blue your wife will ask you one of these. What are you thinking? <laughs> Do you love me? Do I look fat in this? Do you think she is prettier than me? What would you do if I died? (laughs) And Dave Barry says, what makes these questions so bad is that each one is guaranteed to explode into a major argument if the man does not answer properly, which is to say dishonestly. (laughs) One of the problems with the questions that Jesus asked is that they too led to some of the most uncomfortable conversations. And the question that Jesus asks here is no exception. But Jesus doesn't ask this question in order to start an argument. He loves us, and he wants what's best for us. And he has two important goals in this conversation, I believe. 
He wants to revise our picture of who he is and revise our picture of what it means to follow him. Or perhaps he wants to revise our picture of what it means to follow him by revising our picture of who he is. And let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, Jesus wants to revise our picture of who he is. Verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And in verse 28, the disciples give some of the popular opinions of the day. Some say John the Baptist, one of the most prominent politicians of the day, a man by the name of Herod the Tetrarch, believed that Jesus was John the Baptist. Herod had uh, beheaded John, uh, but when he hears about Jesus, he says in Matthew 14, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others looked at the book of Malachi, which speaks about the fact that before the Messiah comes, um, there will be a figure called Elijah who will prepare the way for him. And as these uh, men and women looked at Jesus and the things he was doing, they thought, well, this is Elijah who has come. And still others thought that Jesus was a prophet. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Sir, I can see you are a prophet. There's much speculation as to who Jesus was. And still today, there are a variety of different ideas as to who Jesus was and is. John Lennon once said, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Feminist author Camille Paglia said, Jesus was a brilliant Jewish stand-up comedian, a phenomenal improviser. His parables are great one-liners. Mikhail Gorbachev once said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Uh, No surprises there then. The playwright George Bernard Shaw said, whether you think Jesus was God or not, you must admit he was a first-rate political economist. Prince Philip said he might be described as an underprivileged working-class victim of political and religious persecution. So that clears that up. So many different understandings of who Jesus is, many of which seek to honor Jesus, but all of which are ultimately incorrect. But Jesus' next question cuts through these popular beliefs about him, both in the disciples' day and in our own day. Verse 29, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? That's probably the most important question for us this morning, because ultimately it doesn't matter what my husband or wife believes, it's not what my neighbor thinks, it's what I believe that really counts. Who is this man called Jesus who divided all of human history into two parts before Christ and after Christ? Who is this man whose birth the whole world commemorates at Christmas? Who is this man whom his closest friends decided was God? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or could it be that he really is God come in the flesh? And if so, what does that mean for me? These are questions on which I cannot be neutral. But what about you? Who do you say I am? 
Well, this is actually a question that the disciples have been pondering, at least as early as Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm. Because there we read, the disciples ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But having spent time with Jesus, having had the closest interaction with him, the penny finally drops. And here, right in the middle of Mark's gospel, Peter articulates for the first time the conclusion that they'd slowly come to. Verse 29, you are the Messiah. Peter has got it right. Or has he? Well, it's interesting that in response to Peter's declaration, Jesus does two things. Firstly, verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Not because he wasn't the Messiah, or because he was naturally shy and retiring, or because he didn't want the attention but because people didn't have the right idea of what the term Messiah meant. You see, in Jesus' day, people thought Messiah would be an earthly king, probably an army general who would march into Jerusalem, boot out the Roman occupying forces, and set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And so Jesus tells his disciples not to tell people that he is the Messiah because they've got this incorrect understanding of who Messiah is. And then secondly, Jesus redefines the concept of the Messiah for his disciples. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Jesus revises the picture of who Messiah is and why he's come. But mental pictures are not as changeable as light bulbs. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter wants a successful Messiah, a ruling Messiah, a powerful Messiah. Why? Because he believes that some of his hero's success will rub off on him. And we understand that in our own lives, don't we? When the Springboks win the Rugby World Cup, we say, we won. And when Bafana Bafana get knocked out in the qualifiers, we say, they lost. <laughs> Imagine Sia Khaleesi calling a press conference a week before the World Cup and saying to the nation, the Springboks are going up to Tokyo, and there they will suffer many things. They'll be rejected and booed by the crowds. They'll be annihilated in the first game, and after three days we'll come home. How many of us would have booked tickets for Tokyo or gone to the trouble of buying a green and uh, gold jersey? Peter prefers a successful king to a suffering king because he grasps the implications, implications that Jesus will make clear in a, in a moment. Follow a successful king and you share in his success. Follow a suffering king and you share in his sufferings. So Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter, verse 33. Well, not just Peter. When Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he needs to get their attention because they've actually had the same thing in mind. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Peter wants to paint Jesus in his own image. His idea of Jesus doesn't reflect God's priorities, but merely human concerns. And Jesus recognizes that behind that is Satan's ongoing attempt to get him to bypass the cross. 
But what about me? What is my picture like of who Jesus is? I suspect that all too often we have in mind merely human concerns. And so we change our picture of Jesus to suit ourselves. C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge professor, uh, former atheist, well known for his Narnia books, once put it this way. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day a good time was had by all. More recently, David Platt wrote this on a CNN belief blog. We Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with. A nice middle-class Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who's fine with nominal devotion that doesn't infringe on our comforts, a Jesus who wants us to be balanced, wants us to avoid dangerous extremes and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. Jesus, who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Often our ultimate goal is our personal happiness, and we want a Jesus who makes us happy. And so Jesus has to revise our picture because his goal isn't our happiness, but our holiness. He wants to make us look like him. And in revising our picture of who he is then, Jesus also revises our picture of what it means to follow him. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, it's not just a technique for dealing with the devil. In a very real sense, he's showing Peter his position, his place. What is a follower? It's somebody who is behind someone else following them. And having called Peter to put himself in the place of a follower, not a leader, Jesus goes on to describe in greater detail what it means to follow him. Verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him, and along with his disciples said, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Notice that Jesus calls the crowd to himself along with the disciples because the things he is going to outline apply to everyone, anybody who would come after him. David Platt's book on discipleship is called Radical, but actually this is ordinary. This is the normal Christian life. And it consists of three things that we probably shouldn't separate out into three distinct categories. I think we tend to do that with this verse. We're happy with the follow me part, and we feel that if we get one out of three, then we're doing okay. But actually, in the context of what Jesus says here, following him means following him to where he is going, towards suffering and death. In other words, we follow Jesus by denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Let's just look at those just quickly individually. Uh, The word deny is a very strong word. It's the same word that's used when Peter denies Jesus, repudiates him, doesn't want anything to do with him. In the words of verse 35, denying ourselves means to lose our life for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. To deny myself means giving up my right to self-determination. One pastor says that when we deny ourselves, we take a blank piece of paper and we sign it at the bottom 
and we give it to God and say, now you fill in the rest for me. Secondly, Jesus tells us to take up our cross. Now, when we hear the word cross, we automatically think about Jesus' suffering and death, but that wouldn't have been the picture that came to the disciples or Jesus' hearers because they didn't have that picture yet. Jesus' hearers would have thought about the, the rebel from their village who'd been caught by the Romans or the runaway slave who'd been recaptured, and they'd seen that man go off with a little band of Roman soldiers carrying his cross all the way to the place of crucifixion. Taking up a cross referred to a death march. When a man took up his cross, he was going on a one-way journey from which there would be no return. He was going to die. To take up our cross means to die. And Luke is so helpful here. In his version of this incident, Luke tells us that Jesus says we're to take up our cross daily. Because otherwise, we tend to think of this as being something that might happen to us in the distant future at the end of a long and happy life, hopefully. There's more to it than that. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who died in 1945, put it best in his little book called The Cost of Discipleship. I think more people have heard of the book than have read the entire book, myself included. It's not an easy book to get through. But one of the most famous quotes from the book is this. Bonhoeffer writes, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ means both death and life. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. And Bonhoeffer knew what he was talking about because he did eventually pay the ultimate price for his faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the German pastors who opposed Hitler's Nazi Germany. He was arrested, he was put in jail, and he was executed under the express orders of Heinrich Himmler just a few weeks before the Allies liberated his concentration camp at Flossenburg. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book about Bonhoeffer called Hitler's Cross. And at one point in the book, he writes this. If we ask why Bonhoeffer had the courage to be martyred, we can only answer that he died many times before he was hanged at the concentration camp in Flossenburg. He was passionately convinced that discipleship meant death, death to our own comforts, death to our own agendas, and when necessary, physical death too. That's an awesome quote. Bonhoeffer died many times before he was hanged, died to family, died to possessions, died to self. That's what it means to take up my cross. Now, denying myself and dying to myself applies to all sorts of different areas in my own life. I want to highlight just three that have become important to me as I've studied this passage. Firstly, denying and dying to myself applies to temptation. Last week in the evening congregation, we saw how understanding who I am in Christ can help me overcome temptation. When I understand that I am God's beloved son, 
then I can choose not to do certain things, not simply because they're wrong, but rather because they're unworthy of a child of the king. But here's a second way to overcome temptation. I deliberately choose to think that not doing certain things are an expression of my following Christ in suffering and death. Because not giving into temptation does involve suffering. Either that or I'm, I'm not being tempted in the right ways. Speaking about Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And so not giving into temptation causes me suffering, a suffering I deliberately choose as an expression of the fact that I am following Jesus. Speak more about that in a moment. Secondly, denying and dying to myself applies to trials. Amy Carmichael was a British missionary who served in India for 55 years during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Interestingly, as a little girl, she had brown eyes, and she would pray to God, please turn my eyes blue, not realizing that when she went to India, that was the perfect way to interact with people who had brown eyes. She was one of those great pioneer missionaries who served God under unbelievable circumstances in India. One of the greatest difficulties that missionaries face isn't the difficulty with foreign food or the difficulty with foreign culture or language, but the difficulty with fellow missionaries. And uh, in her early years in India, Amy lived with a, a number of missionary ladies, one of whom she describes as being unfair and curiously dominating in certain ways and words. And Amy wrote about something that took place in her interactions with this difficult lady. She wrote, one day I felt the I in me rising hotly. And quite clearly, so clearly that I could show you the place on the floor of the room where I was standing when I heard it, the word came, seeing it a chance to die. And to this day, that word is life and release to me, and it has been to many others. Seeing this which seems to stir up all you most wish were not stirred up, seeing it a chance to die to self in every form, accepted as just that, a chance to die. The Apostle James famously, or perhaps infamously, begins his little letter in this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I can take the trials that come my way and see them as an aspect of my discipleship knowing that his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in my weakness and knowing that through the suffering, God can form Jesus in me, the Jesus who himself suffered. And then thirdly, denying and dying to myself applies to Christian service. Losing my life for the sake of the gospel, making sacrifices for the sake of the gospel sense of adventure and sacrifice for the gospel used to be common a hundred years ago. On the 5th of February, 1885, a train pulled out of Victoria Station in London, and hundreds of people uh, saw it off. It contained seven men named as, known as the Cambridge Seven. And for the previous several months, the nation had been gripped by the scandal of these young men dropping out of society and going to darkest China as missionaries. 
Each had given up a fortune, a place in society, a promising future. Among them was C.T. Studd, a Cambridge and England cricketer, an idol in terms of sport. After 40 years of serving in China, he went to Africa and died in the Congo in 1931. Now, there was D.E. Horst, who resigned his commission in the army and stayed in China for 60 years. Third was Beaucamp, an aristocrat, a contemporary of Studd at Cambridge. He became an itinerant evangelist in poverty-stricken Western China. While he was in China, he received uh, from his elder brother in England a note to say that seeing as he had no heir, Beaucamp could be his um, uh, heir, and uh, he offered him a substantial share in his fortune if he would abandon the mission in China and come home. But he refused. He died aged 80 in China, 1939. And if we're to ask the question, why? Why did these men go, leaving such promising and comfortable lives in Victorian Britain and trading that for the squalor and obscurity of 19th century China or Africa? The answer is found in Studd's word. If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Notice how Studd's picture of who Jesus is is affected his understanding of what it means to follow him. So one writer that I read recently asks this uncomfortable question. In fact, reading this was probably the whole motivation for the sermon. He said this, So what have you denied yourself to follow Jesus? There must be something. If there's nothing, then you're not really following the Jesus who speaks to you here. What is the suffering? What are the real crosses you've intentionally embraced because you're his disciple? Is it the painful distance between you and your non-Christian family because you now follow Jesus and keep trying to persuade them to follow him too? Is it a loving perseverance in a deeply unhappy marriage? Is it denying your children what their peers all enjoy so that gospel ministry can happen? For me, it is, among other things, not having the sexual relationship with a man that I long for. I do that out of obedience to Jesus' words here. You might have picked up that the author, Ed Shaw, is a pastor in England who battles same-sex attraction. written a very helpful book called The Plausibility Factor. It's in the church library. I highly recommend it to you. But in, in that book, Ed describes how he seeks to obey the evangelical understanding of the Bible on this issue, that he remains celibate for the rest of his life. But at one point in the book, he, he says this, Do you want to make sexual godliness seem plausible to people like me? Don't demand of me anything that you're unwilling to demand of yourself. Take Christ-likeness seriously in every area of your life. I'm asking Ed Shaw to remain celibate for the rest of his life as an expression of his obedience to Jesus. But what sacrifices am I making as an expression of my obedience in temptation, in trials? in service. Well, we've looked at a lot and our time is gone. There's so much more that we could look at, but maybe just look at verse 35. There is hope and encouragement here. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his Father's glory 
with the holy angels. Does that mean that after living a long life of self-giving service, which is really painful to me, then I die and get eternal life? No. Jesus is speaking about what happens not when we die. He's speaking about a quality of life right here and now. He says, choose to hold on to your life now and you'll lose it, both in this life and in the next. Choose to give up your life now and you'll get it back, both in this life and the next. In the words of St. Francis, it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we're born to life. Life in all its fullness, right here and right now. Dallas Willard, in one of his books, points out that following Jesus will cost us everything, but not following Jesus will cost us too. Non-discipleship costs, he writes. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs a life penetrated through by love. It costs faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Non-discipleship costs hopelessness that stands, hopefulness rather, that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. It costs power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. So as we come to the communion table, we remind ourselves of the words of the Apostle Paul. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead.